So I just want to keep referring to the diagram sheet that uh, I gave you all. And that sheet holds sort of the uh, journey that I will be depicting in the course of this month and have already gone well into it. <clears throat> and this uh, diagram is uh, basically a diagram of the spiritual journey in framed in terms of going from form to formlessness. And the reason I frame it in that way is because it, of its absolute simplicity in movement. Uh, it's the simplest thing in the world uh, to move in that direction uh, conceptually. <laughs> I mean, all of us get a sense that uh, where we're going is uh, from the full and established sense of myself to emptiness. <clears throat> it's in all the literature. I don't know if we give it the credence and credibility and central place that it deserves because it's this, the one central uh, principle uh, in really any spiritual journey, real well-framed in Buddhism, that has to be in place for the journey to be complete. It just, you can't dodge it. You know, it's, nothing makes sense except in respect to that. So it's an issue that I like to put, bring forth a front and center so that we look at it from day one, really. And then it's not such a big surprise when it starts showing up in our practice. In fact, if I can establish an intention in you early in your practice, you'll find it showing up much sooner than it would if you were practicing in some other direction in which that wasn't the highlighted point. So that's the reason I'm offering you these talks. Now, uh, some of you have practiced with me for years and years and years, decades. So it's not a big surprise where I'm taking you. <laughs> I've done this uh, with you now forever. And yet every time I do this, I get a lot of kickback notes. If not, <laughs> and just uh, just like uh, thrashings, uh, and so I, I mean I can't I can't help it. <laughs> it's where we need to go, uh, and if if each of each of us can decide to dig in our heels if we want to, but uh, it's so central to the teaching that we have to at least bring this. Uh, movement, this journey into mind. Now, uh, so this sense of going from form to formlessness on this diagram uh, shows it pretty well, and it shows us also quite likely where we will dig in our heels. Uh, some of us will do it very early on when things are still pretty much confused in that first uh, left-hand uh, la uh, line there. <clears throat> where form and formlessness are confused. That's the range, that's the area of practice. And some of us love our practice so much that we really don't care. It doesn't mean anything to us anymore where it's moving us because the practice itself has become our means, become our ends, not our means to our ends, but our ends in itself. We love to practice. Uh, and it's deeply sad to me that we've lost any perspective of where this practice might take us when we enjoy the practice so much. Um, and so, like anything, 
you know, that we do in spirit, on the spiritual journey, it can certainly take us in an odd direction, and that is one of them. But if we look at what is happening when we are just uh, uh, surrendering to our practice as the lifeline, is that what we're doing is confused. We don't know really what, where this journey takes us. We just know that the practice is going to be my salvation. And we put a lot of weight and intention in doing it and having it do just that. And it, it's because we don't want to give up our uh, imaginary friend called me. Yeah, imaginary friend will call our imaginary friend Harvey. <laughs> Shall we do that? <laughs> That's a neutral enough name for us. Okay, so Harvey is with us uh, certainly early on, very um, vociferous, very um, loud in, uh, in uh, all of Harvey's glory as a rabbit. And Harvey, uh, and we really like the company of Harvey. Harvey. And we uh, know that the direction the practice is taking, if we look across, you know, just three inches to the right there, is that it's separating Harvey from, from me, from the essence of me. And uh, I'm not sure I want to part with Harvey. And I might show you at that point that Harvey has, uh, you have black and blue paw prints all over your body from Harvey beating you. Plus, you have Harvey's teeth marks in your ankles. But you call them love bites. <laughs> so uh, there's not too much I can do. <laughs> you have to be willing to get a perspective of this thing and see that you know, Harvey is not always our friend. Although we is a companion since early on, it's a fictitious companion, an imaginary companion. Uh, but, you know, that's good enough for some of us who are lonely in depth of our loneliness. Uh, having an imaginary friend is, uh, is good enough because when we look across to the right side, it feels even more isolating and uh, more desert-like in our existential aloneness that's coming, especially if we have to give up our friend Harvey. So again, you know, this is all timing. Uh, This is whether we want to do it or not. Uh, The teacher has very little ability to, or should they even have the ability to move you or encourage you where you don't want to go. But the one thing I would suggest is that wherever we uh, get arrested on this journey from form to formlessness, that we really look at that place where we are stuck. And most of you are very good at defining where that place is. You know where you are. You know where you're stuck. It could be, as some of you have mentioned, in your core issue. You know, you just aren't sure whether the arising of the psychological issue whether you want to give it up. It feels like you haven't done often, you haven't done enough penance in relationship to that issue to be uh, 
worthy enough to transcend it, to move beyond it. And some of us are tied to the issue itself in terms of our life raft of definition. And we think that if we have to give up this core issue, uh, which is where that form starts taking off from formlessness, it's, uh, I mean, what, well, how will I know, what will life mean to me without that? I only know myself and life through that particular issue. And, and so I'm very reluctant to give it up. I'm really reluctant to give it up because it has dis- described my terrain, where I'm going, who I am. It's given me some nobility of issue. I can work on this thing called my unworthiness or my sense of lacking. And I'm gaining on it. I'm doing better, you know. <laughs> Harvey's not biting me as often. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> so yeah, we get a sense that there is some improvement happening and that we're working in the ways that, we're, that we are comfortable working. <clears throat> but what we really need to do is to see where it is that we refuse to go. And the reason we refuse to go that next step is because we haven't looked sufficiently at the value of where we are, what it's, what it's giving us. What's the value of stopping and, and arresting ourselves at, at this particular place, wherever that place is? What is it giving me? What is, people talk about you know, all the noise in their minds. And they don't know how to quiet the noise. And I said, well, what is the noise giving you? What is it doing for you? Don't look at what it's not doing for you. Don't look at its limitation. You know its limitation. The limitation is it's noisy. What's its value? What's it doing for you? How is it confirming you? You see, that's, a, that's an issue. We want to just see the negative side so we, can, we think we can just kind of barrel our way through it. You have to understand that there's an approach avoidance to every one of these places where we arrest. And until it's thoroughly discovered, each area is thoroughly discovered, we can't move on because we don't know the whole story of why we should move on. And so to stop and take a look at, at that, and it might be in one of those areas of discernment, you know, I'm very good at active discernment, but passive discernment is just, it just feels like I'm too lazy or I'm feeling, I want to doing nothing, you know, it just feels like you know, my mother always told me I would be no good, and there I am doing nothing, being no good. You know, I don't know. I know it goes all different ways. But we have to look at the voices of complacency, of inertia, that keep us frozen. And it can be anywhere within that diagram. And it's the place where we find our practice repeatedly returning to again and again and again, over years sometimes. And it might be a, the authority issue. Nobody's going to tell me where to go in this practice. And therefore, we don't go at all because nobody can get in. Not even your insight can get in. You see, it's, it's, it requires some availability here. <laughs> Somebody's got to answer the phone. <laughs> so, so, you know... Let us be honest. The one correcting element in all this is our honesty, our ability. Okay, so this is where I'm stuck. 
I love it when somebody comes and says to me, you know, I love active discernment, but I can't, I hate passive discernment. It just feels too feminine, too non, non-American male. <laughs> Good. Let's look at that. Now, with that honesty, we can look at it, you see. But if you try to cover up why you don't want to go with other reasons, then you're back into the confusion stage, back into the, into the, uh, into where everything is just you know just sort of mind established. This uh, this thing's there's a beautiful divide that starts to happen right where that lateral line starts bifurcating into the. It's it's this beautiful sense in ourselves that happens at that point where silence comes into play, where we sense something truly sacred, perhaps for the first time in our life. And it's been there, but it's been so confused and enmeshed within the sounds of our mind and our demands and our self-revulsion and all of that that we have never felt it before. And then through the temperance of our practice, something actually gets in where we begin to sense, we begin to sense something truly sacred. At first, it's rather confusing to us because, like, what is this? It feels a little eerie. You know, you don't, we're not used to what the sacred feels like. It feels... Um, Awkward. I don't know what to do with it. You know, it doesn't fit anywhere. It doesn't ask anything of me. And it may be the first time, and I I love this, you know, throughout that early, that first lateral line there is a long one. It can go years and years into that lateral line on the far left of your page there. And, uh, And it's all, you know, we don't really know what the sacred is. We don't know what... And, we, and we, we're given the instructions of how to seek the sacred through the instructions of meditation. Non-judgmental awareness, allowance, letting things be, all of that, letting go, all of the different ways that we frame the practice and give instructions are really meant to access the, the sacred. But if we're honest, have we ever, on that lateral line, has there ever been a moment in which there hasn't been, that there has been genuine non-judgment? No, there hasn't. Because that's not what the self will let you do. The self will not stop commenting. It will not stop judging. And even though we have moments of quietude, there's always something in there, a little noise, a little, uh, just a little jab, you know. Am I quiet enough? I should be more quiet. Something in there that just is a little, you're just a little off, aren't you? You see? Now when that separates out, you can actually have a moment for the first time in which you know you are loved. Where there is no judgment that comes in. That you realize you are being held in sacred presence, in being. 
And that is truly a moment worth remembering. Because really, there's this kind of doubt that we'll ever get to a point in which that judgment is truly quieted. But it comes through. And it's like this breeze that comes from nowhere. This uplifting breeze. And it gives you a sense of where the sacred will, will lead us. And it's not only safe, it's embracing. And so we want to descend. We want to move. We want to understand. We want to get more refined in our access to that. Which means that we have to be quieter. Now the way to access the sacred is through the sacred. That's what's so interesting. There's no other door to the sacred except using itself. That's for emphasis. We use what we call self-awareness, which is just awareness confiscated with judgment, surrounded with judgment, to access that which is truly aware without judgment. That's, you have to use the sacred to access the sacred. There's no other way around it. And so as we do that, we find ourselves willing to be quieter because we realize that the true sacred doesn't have this cacophony of noise that surrounds it that we call our mindfulness. That the true sacred, the true awareness, the true presence stands on its own free of noise. And that's why it's loving. It has no opinion. It just embraces without opinion. And this beautiful sense of being touched by something that is still begins to grow in us, begins to be affirmed in us. We sense as we access this, that this sacred is an abiding sacred. It's not an add-on sacred. We didn't order it up. We didn't conjure it up. And most importantly, we didn't cultivate it up. That this is an abiding sacred. Now we need to understand that. or we're going to throw ourselves way off the map of things. And therefore, there's nothing that I need to add to myself that will make me more sacred. What I need to do is eliminate the noise that keeps me from seeing, from accessing that very abiding presence. And so I realized that the thoughts which have always accompanied me on my journey, which have been my salvation because they've told me what to do, they told me when to do it, they've disciplined me into doing it, they've scolded me when I haven't done it well enough, they've forced me into a moral hold on everything, uh, which I think is really the spiritual coming out of me. And all of the noise has kind of, has in essence sort of bottled me in to myself. The more noise I have, the more I am held within the polarities of where I think I'm seeking. You know, I'm 
trying to be good, I'm trying to be trustworthy, I'm trying to be loyal, I'm trying to be helpful, I'm trying to be patient, I'm trying to be kind, I'm trying to be gentle, I'm trying to be nice, I'm trying to be... That's the way it feels, isn't it? I have to do this too? We scold our way back to noise, don't we? Because we like our friend. We like our friend. And as we get closer to the sacred, our friend starts screaming a little. He gets, he or she gets restless, gets rather dramatic gets fearful, fear is a good one. It'll do whatever it needs to get you to love it more importantly than you love the sacred. And it's often very successful in doing just that. Because this where I'm going isn't as confirming as where I am and what I've been. And I don't know where I'm going. And anytime we look ahead and we sense and we hear the words of selflessness and emptiness and all that, that doesn't sound so fulfilling to me. And so my mind will conjure up noise in rebellion to those particular directives. Being quiet, being still, even non-judgment. What's, who's, what's going to keep me in line if I'm non-judgment? So I'll concede to non-judgment, but I want a little judgment there just to keep me morally straight, you know, keep me (laughs) God-fearing. So it's a, it's a journey of our own resistance. It's a journey through our own resistance. That's what this is. Why is this taking so long? Because you want it to take long. Because what you have is more important than the faith, than your faith. But somehow, sometimes I don't know how, because there's a lot of furniture against the door. The door cracks open just enough to give us that beautiful, fresh air breeze of the sacred, of truly being loved. Unconditioned love. like your dog, right? Loves you no matter what comes in the door. I think that's probably as close as we can get on the human frame. But it's even more than that. It's more than that. You know, just like a child who holds on to their dearly loved stuffed animal. 
And at some point, with perhaps the parents' encouragement, they're willing to give that stuffed animal up. It's a huge maturing step for that to occur. It seems like I'm losing my, the whole world when I give up my stuffed animal. It seems like my childhood is being risked. But in my due readiness, which is a maturity in itself, I release it. I forget it one day. I leave it behind. And I don't miss it. And that's the key. I leave it behind, just forgot it. And I do my day, and I don't, it doesn't hurt that I forgot it. So too, the sense of self is very much like that. We carry it around because we think it's a kind of protective shield for us. We think it so establishes our orientation to life, our depiction of life. It holds our qualifiers. It holds our relativity, what we can and cannot do. It holds our comparison. It holds our judgment. It creates an absolute definition. And at some point, many of you have had many of these times, you'll have an experience or you'll a point of the part of the day, you won't carry it with you at all. And you won't miss it. But after that 10, 15 minutes, half an hour, two hour period of time, you'll reclaim it and said that it's been with me all the time. Wasn't it a great period of stillness I had there? Man, I, I really did a good, that was good. I really did well on that. You'll reclaim yourself within that time when you weren't. And so then you hold your, pick up your stuffed animal. You didn't miss it when it wasn't there. Many of us have thought, this is not a big thing. <laughs> it's like putting myself down, not putting yourself down, putting yourself down. It's not a big thing. When you... I see basketball, I, I like college basketball, and I, wa I watch the team. Sometimes the whole team will put themselves down, and there'll be this incredible synchronicity of ball movement and play, and you can feel it on the court. Sometimes you'll see somebody do Tai Chi or Qigong, and you see it in their movements, that there's no self in that. And when you're sitting, it also comes in. And when you're walking, it comes in. And it comes in periodically during the day. It just doesn't look the way you thought it was going to look. You didn't think your life would look so full and complete without your stuffed animal. And it looks even better without it. It's not what we think it is. It's much better than we think it is. But we, get, we misread how to do it. Many of us genuinely over the years have sought what it means to live and abide within emptiness. It's been truly 
a point of our intention to do just that. But we get confused on how to do that. We don't know that what that means. It, we essentially have to switch paradigms. We have to move from one standards, from one set of procedures into a completely different set. So here I'm going to make some suggestions tonight for us to be able to do just that. One of them, stop practicing as if you were someone on your way to being nobody. No, you're nobody to begin with. You're nobody to begin with. You've never been a someone. However you're feeling right now, that's not a someone. That's not a someone. So if I'm a nobody, I want to practice in line with being a nobody. Instead of practicing in line as believing I'm a somebody on my way to being a nobody. Now, if I practice like I'm a nobody, I don't want to pick up my somebodyness, do I? I? Let me just keep it clean. Let me align my practice so that I don't intentionally establish more noise within my practice or more reactivity so that those ideas of me being someone don't arise. You see, that's a very different way of doing practice when you start with the assumption that you are someone and now you've got to kind of hunker down, white-knuckle yourself through being someone so that you can finally get to the door of being nobody and pass through it. My friends, this is the truth. So now I'm, I'm on top of what it means to keep my will, my ambition. Those are the obvious ones. Right? Will and ambition is obviously arising from the belief that I'm someone. My reactivity, my storyline, now we're getting a little bit, uh, he's, starting to, he's starting to poke me. <laughs> Those give us the assumption we're someone. The story in particular gives me an assumption that I've lived a life of the past going into the future. Okay, so I've got to be careful that I'm not following and abiding and believing within my story and within that, the core issue within my story that I am this kind of someone. If I believe that, see, the reason that it is very difficult for us to step out of either a positive or negative image is not because we like to berate ourselves, although some of us are masochistic or just feel deserving of that. It's because of the strength of the belief and the conviction in either direction. I really believe this about me. If you knew this, 
you'd cut me to the quick. If I tell you who I am and you don't like it, that's all I've got. That's what we think. What else have I got to offer you? So I am going to protect you from seeing that so that you, I can force you to like me. Or pretend I'm different than the way I really feel inside. And that sets an agenda for inauthenticity for the rest of our life. So then you say, okay, I don't care. I like having people like me, but not at the expense of the pain it's causing me. And now I want to see, first of all, what it is about this belief that I continue to believe in. Why do I need that belief? Why do I need that sense of self-definition? You see, now it's taking me, whoa, it's really taking me up against the wall here. Well, what would I be without self-definition, I say to myself? Well, how about the pain of this self-definition? Is it, is it worth turning away from the possibility that it might be an improved, it might be an improved situation, an improved environment? Or do you just want to stay within the pain of what you believe about yourself? And after a while, we will bottom out from that pain of what we believe about ourselves and want to step out of it. And we don't even care where that step takes us. But by God, I am not going back to that. And that's the maturity of, of putting down our stuffed animal. It's a tremendous maturity to get to that point, And the step out of it continues a ripening of maturity beyond belief. And we really get a sense of where this journey is going to take us now. For the shackles are off. And we're practicing now in accordance with the direction that it's supposed to be taking. We're not undermining every step we take, which most of our practice history has been doing. We sit. And it's when a a challenge arises in us. The sense of me, the sense of self-strategy is to overcome that. To, to find, to surmount it, to get around it, to do something. But that's, not, that's, that's what the sense of me in a divided world, and separate world, that's what I do. I try to conquer. Conquest is what I try to do. And a problem is an opportunity to show my mettle. But that's not selflessness way, selflessness way. Selflessness connects with it. So I don't do anything about it. I want to understand it. I want it to let it in. You see, whereas the sense of self wants to keep it out, selflessness wants to let it in because it realizes that all things are selfless and therefore all things are connected. And the self realizes just the opposite, that 
it is disconnected and wants to stay that way and will use strategies to that effect. Now here's one. I'm going to go a little more subtle. The sense of self with, has defined life in a certain way. And one of the ways it has defined it is in terms of time. That there's a past from which I have come and a future to which I will go. And it looks at its spiritual journey in terms of just that. But selflessness does not look in that way. And each of us in this room, I am fairly certain, have seen the depth of understanding of, of the fact that time is a concept. It's an it's a abstraction. It's an idea that's happening in present moment. Present moment holding the reality, the abstract being some thought within that reality of now. We've seen that. We've heard ourselves think, perhaps. That is the verification of selflessness. It is verifying the paradigm from which selflessness comes. Although you may not feel selfless in the moment you are hearing your thoughts, you are sliding over, you're crossing over into that paradigm and seeing that those thoughts are actually arising now. They're just seen to be thoughts about future and past. The past and future are just conceptual. And therefore, for us to act in accordance as if there were a past or future within our practice is to fall within the bounds of self once more. So I just refuse to believe it. It doesn't mean relatively that you have to, when the lunch bell goes, there's no such thing as lunch. <laughs> Come on. I mean, I, we need to be pragmatic. You have an airplane flight, you just don't get on an airplane without a ticket. You've got to call up in advance. All those things do not deny or defy what I've just said. But in your practice, to think in terms of time, where I'm going, how much further is there, how many more lifetimes, I don't care how you frame it. It can be that far and that abstract, or it can be, how can I get over this? And the questions we impart to the problems we see, hold time within them. When? And so we reframe our language so that we live in accordance to that language. And all of that action that we take to abide and to live within the paradigm, even before the realization occurs, assures that that realization will occur. But the one thing it can't assure is our willingness to have that realization. That, my friends, no teacher can prepare you for. That's maturity.
That's readiness. That's whether you want to lay down your imaginary friend. And I don't mean that in any kind of belittling way. But if you ask your questions, the real relevant questions of what is this imaginary friend called me giving me? Why do I need it? What's its value? How is it feeding me to have this definition, to have me around? What's its limitation? And one of its limitations that we may not realize is how we see the world. The world of subject and object, the world of you and me, Russia and China, them and us. That's how we see. That's how we will always see. And isn't it time then for us to meet? Isn't it time now to surrender our playthings? That is not a demeaning statement. I really mean that. But it is a plaything. The sense of self has never, ever been a true representation of what you've imparted to it. And so we sit with maturity, looking at where it is we refuse to go, but asking pertinent questions about why it is that we refuse to go there. And that is the maturing process itself. That's what brings us along so that at some point it's time and we know it and we make the step. And all is well. Okay. Can we sit for a minute or two? Shall we, would somebody lead us? Uh, would you mind?